This episode of the Commerce Marketer Podcast is brought to you by Bronto Software, the leading email provider to the global internet retailer 1000. For more ideas on how to improve your marketing automation and to take your email to the next level, visit www.bronto.com resources. Welcome, everyone, to the Commerce Marketer Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Zakowitz, and in today's episode, we're talking challenges and changing landscape of the on-demand economy. And joining me today is serial entrepreneur Scott Wingo. He's the CEO of Spiffy, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor, and co-host of the podcast you all know and love, The Jason and Scott Show. So, Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Greg. I'm excited to be on your podcast. All right. You're in studio today. This is a glorious-looking studio, as it you is. can tell. Very nice. Nice white walls. Some uh, dinosaurs. A couple dinosaurs, which is always good. Scott, before we jump into it, why don't you give the audience just a real quick background, just in case they don't know who you are. A little background on yourself, your ventures. I mentioned the CEO of Spiffy now, so a little bit about what Spiffy is and, and what they do. Sure, sure. Uh, I'll try not to use all our time on, on this part. So I am from South Carolina, a little town called Aiken, and went to University of South Carolina undergrad for computer engineering. Thought I wanted to do hardware, but realized I want to do software. So I'm a software guy, then came to NC State for grad school. Uh, went to work for a startup in Connecticut after school and realized I love startups, but not cold weather. So moved back here to the Triangle area, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill area, and started a company. And my first company was called Stingray Software. Uh, I started that in 1995, and that was software for Visual C++ developers. Uh, sold that in 98 to a public company. Then I was enamored with uh, two things, the internet and e-commerce. Uh, I'm a big Star Wars fan, so I, I have a lot of Star Wars collectibles, and I discovered e-commerce early, especially auction sites uh, as a collector. And so my second company was called Auction Rover, and it was an online auction search engine. Uh, we sold that uh, during the internet bubble to a public company called goto.com, who subsequently changed their name to Overture. Uh, while we were at Overture, we came up with uh, the idea that essentially became Channel Advisor. Uh, and this was helping large brands and retailers sell across the internet off of their websites. Uh, we spun out of Overture in 2001. Uh, and then Channel Advisor, uh, so that was kind of two quick hits. And then Channel Advisor was, uh, is still an ongoing company. I'm still involved. Uh, so the short story there is uh, we raised 90 million in venture capital uh, and went public in 2013 uh, on the New York Stock Exchange under Ecom, E-C-O-M, like e-commerce. Uh, and then uh, after a couple of years of being public, uh, I realized going public's fun and running a public company is, is not something I think I'm meant for. So at the same time, I'd been doing some experimentation in the on-demand economy, uh, which is an area I've been really intrigued about. And um, that experimentation turned into an on-demand car care company called Spiffy, um, which is at getspiffy.com. So I've been doing that full-time since 2016. You said you started experimenting a little bit. How did you land on on-demand car washing? And we'll talk about subsequent services now, but how did you land on that particular aspect of it? Yeah, so, so I have a, a long history in car washing. Uh, a lot of people don't know this about me. But in, <laughs> after starting Channel Advisor, I sold two companies. So I was, was looking to divest or to kind of diversify, I guess is the right word. Um, so I figured if I'm going to do an internet startup, which is way out on the risk spectrum, what's something I can invest in that's on the other side of the risk spectrum? Um, so I, I had a friend that wanted to kind of run a local business. We looked at a bunch of things and ended up buying a car wash in 2003. Uh, and then we built another one in 2005. So I've owned two car washes for you know, going on uh, 15 years now. Um, so I've been in the car wash industry. So that was kind of step one that led to
to Spiffy. Um, and then step two was uh, at our car washes we on the weekends. So so at a physical car wash, uh, uh, for those folks that have never, never thought about it, 85% of your business is really done on the weekends. So, and then you do a little bit during the week. Um, so on the weekends, what we do to optimize that, that huge impact that the weekends have is you open up some detailing. So someone will come through for a typical, you know, 10 to $20 wash. And if we see their car needs particular care, maybe on the interior, we'll have a detailing bay uh, and they can come into the lobby. And you know, one of our folks will spend a couple hours detailing the car for them. So what was really interesting is in 2008 with the recession, um, that business just went away. And you know it, it, it cost $100 plus, which you, you would your intuition would be, well, it's the fact no one wants to spend $100. But as we talked to some regular users of that, what we found is, it wasn't the cost, it was the convenience factor. It was kind of the, the opportunity cost, if you will. So we we did an experiment at uh, Carolina Auto Spa, which is the name of the car wash, uh, where we got a van and we kind of said, all right, we'll use the physical car wash as lead gen. So people coming through will identify someone with a minivan that's destroyed on the interior, and then we'll schedule a time to come to their house and do that. Um, and then that, that really uh, did very well. And we quickly had a couple vans and you know, that, that had more than replaced the revenue we lost during the recession. So that was kind of another interesting data point that, that led to Spiffy. How long from concept of going, hey, we can do this from a uh, appointment standpoint and go to where you are to actual execution of that? Because I've got to imagine with soap and detergents, things like that, you've got environmental compliance and environmental concerns with that. So from concept to actually execution of being able to go out, how long did that take you? Was it quick or longer? Yeah, so um, so from 2008 forward, we were doing uh, mobile detailing out of our physical locations, mostly at residences. So then Uber happened, and, and I, I know a lot of the Uber folks, um, one thing that's interesting in the world of e-commerce is our, our people move around a lot. So, so I know, know a lot of folks from eBay, PayPal, Google on their commerce initiatives. Uh, and they're now like senior execs at WeWork and uh, Uber and Lyft and all this kind of thing. So, so I was pretty early on the Uber experience. So then 2014, I, I'd been wanting to experiment with this idea of saying, let's marry an app to this mobile thing we're already doing and seeing what happens. So 2014, um, Post Channel Advisor IPO, we finally had the time and the resources to experiment on this. So we put an app out just as a simple minimum viable product, kind of a you know, lean startup thing. Uh, it's really just a, a simple front end for ordering a car wash. Um, and then the, the big thing we learned there is when you give people the control, you know, kind of the, the app to do this, uh, overwhelmingly it's opposite of what we do at our physical car wash. So uh, people want their car wash while they're at work. <laughs> and this is the first time we'd ever seen this. Even, you know, even when we were running it out of our physical car wash, it was really more residential oriented. So we said, okay, this is interesting. Um, and then um, the bad news is as we went to office parks, like, like here, we're at American Tobacco, but every office park essentially uh, where we were getting requested does not allow on-site detailing. So that's, that's when we kind of ran up against the environmental thing, um, which we hadn't hit when we were going to residences. So what we found is um, there was four common objections at office parks and office parks are managed by property management firms. So, you know, the, the Goodman family, the capital broadcasting guys, they're, they're kind of the property manager here, for example, but you'll have like, you know, um, uh, high woods, there's, there's, you know, sometimes the owner, the builder, 
and the leasing agent are the property manager. Sometimes there's three different entities in there, and just kind of varies. But but universally, you know, what we heard from these property managers when as they were kicking us off was four reasons they don't allow on-site. Um, almost any services really, but detailing especially. Uh, number one is traditional detailers are, are not very professional. Um, so they were called like sketchy dudes. Uh, and number two, their vans weren't professional. So they were called sketchy vans. So sketchy dudes and sketchy vans freak out a lot of people from a security standpoint. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> number number three, they don't have insurance. So there was a, you know, a pretty you know valid reason there of you know, one of these guys, if they clipped the building or did something, uh, and then the biggest one was actually environmental. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of people invest uh, heavily to be LEED certified, which is you know defining not only how much energy does a building use, but what happens to the runoff water. And there's tons of EPA regulations around runoff water, um, and essentially traditional detailers would leave a chemical spill in the parking lot. The one of the dirty secrets of detailing is, you know, if you're running your own detail business. Uh, time is of the essence, and you can cut off a lot of time by using more caustic uh, chemicals. So if you use, uh, for example, tires to get a lot of brake dust on them, uh, most of the chemicals there have a fair amount of uh, acidity um, to them. You know, when you read the, the, the labels, it actually has hydrochloric acid in it. But, you know, that takes five minutes to clean the tire because the acid really works the brake dust um, versus maybe doing it 20 minutes with a green chemical. So we said, we really have to solve this. So we, we came up with what we call Spiffy Green, which is a whole environmental friendly system. Number one, we still use water, but very little. So we use less than, you know, between five and 10 gallons of water per wash, um, which is, you know, one-tenth of what you use at home. Uh, number two, we use green chemicals. So we went on a whole research phase and we've researched this pretty deeply and we use the greenest chemicals we can find. Uh, and then the biggest innovation, which, you know, it's kind of funny as a software guy, it's a hardware innovation. We wash every car on a mat. So we bring all the water with us um, and then we wash every car on a mat and it's like a little bathtub for your car. And that catches all the runoff. So, so no water hits the dirt or the pavement. That mat has a lip to it and uh, it, it contains all the water. And then we suck that water out of the mat on, back onto the truck into a gray water vessel. And then we take that water to a central reclamation system, which is the exact same you know, EPA uh, required process we do at a physical car wash. When you're going through this and like, hey, let's, let's put the app out there. Let's see if there's a proof of concept here. And you're kind of moving through step by step. Did it feel to you that once you got to the next step, you're like, oh, I didn't see this thing, like the EPA thing. I didn't see this coming or the insurance or the sketchy dudes and sketchy vans. Now we got to get we got to get the van painted and things like that. Did it seem like a never ending step after step or were these things you kind of planned for? You knew they were coming. Yeah. When uh, So this is my fourth startup. And what, what I've learned is when you're creating something, when you're doing something that hasn't been done before, you just kind of have to have the mindset that you know, there's going to be, you know, a, a never ending set of, you know, pitfalls and walls I have to break through or go around or go over. But then you always have to ask yourself, is it worth doing this? Right. So the reason we were excited to solve these problems was the demand for what we were doing is was off the charts. You know, we just put an app out there and literally today, um, I, I know a lot about online marketing as do you, we do very little online marketing. Um, so, so you know, there, there's this huge demand uh, for what we want to do. So that was kind of the the north star that said, all right, if we keep going and we can solve this and, and figure this out, there is a pot of gold on the other side of the rainbow. You know, I, I know a fair number of startup people that that kind of they break through all these barriers and then there's there's no pot of gold there. So so you have to kind of like have both things aligned. So it wasn't surprising that we ran into all these things. That we we did not anticipate them at all, though. There were you know. I would never have guessed, even today, you know, we 
Uh, what I've learned is you have to just go in with an open mind and, and the, the agile methodology really works here from, from software engineering where get something out quickly and then iterate uh, because you can, we could form a committee of really smart people and we would never guess what's gonna happen. Um, so it's better to get it out there and learn fast than to try to guess. Do you think that's the biggest challenge for companies or people who are starting? They have this idea of being like, hey, let's let's go do this. And I'm thinking, you know, Safelight Auto Glass for years have been coming out to your house and it was it's super convenient, right? This is it's not pre-cell phone, but, you know, pre-smartphone. Yeah. The biggest challenge for people who are starting businesses now, at least on-demand businesses, do you think it's the execution side or do you think it's, you've got to have the right idea here? And I, I say idea is a poor way, but I, I'm thinking like, there's a gas service, right? On-demand gasoline service. So you park your car, they come to your office, they fill you up while you're in the office. You don't have to go to the gas station. Again, I've got to believe environmental concerns with that as well. Flammable liquids you're driving around with and things. But do you think, is it harder to choose the right on-demand service or can you make a lot of it work knowing that people like the convenience factor, but it's all the other steps. It's all the point A to point B to point C to point D, the unexpected, which is more challenging for people. Yeah. So I think if we look at some of the failures in the on-demand economy, that that's kind of, I've studied a lot of these. Um, so there was a home cleaning service um, called HomeAway. And uh, no, uh, that's not the name. I'll, I'll think about it in a second. I think HomeAway is the VRBO. Yeah. yeah, there's there's it has home in the name. It always confuses me. So home something. And, you know, what, what they did is they created a marketplace. So, and I'm a big fan of marketplaces, but, um, you know, they didn't really think what happens is a lot of business people will correctly, they'll build the spreadsheet and the model and the business model, and they'll put most of their thinking into that. Um, for any kind of a consumer-oriented product though, um, what I've learned from Amazon over 20 years is you gotta put the customer at the very heart of that, which, which sounds obvious, but but you'd be surprised how many companies don't. But then you have to have a balance too. So, so what that company didn't do is, it was a terrible customer experience because what would happen is two scenarios, you would have, have a great cleaner and then they couldn't guarantee you'd have that cleaner again. So as a customer who had a great cleaner in your house, you're like, wow, I love you know, uh, Sarah and Bob, they did a great job. I really want them to come back. And the marketplace says, sorry, you know, next time you could get, you know, we can't guarantee you'll get those people. Then you're incented to go direct to that cleaner. So, you know, so that's, that's bad. So ha great experience, customer turns. Uh, then if you had a bad experience, then you, you know, so let's say you had a bad cleaner, you know, what the company would say is, sorry, those are contractors, try to get your money back from them. Would you like to use us again? Uh, <laughs> so then, you know, if you had a bad experience, you would turn. So what they ended up doing, is, and then they, so then they expanded as quickly as they could. So, they, so effectively they had churn on the top and bottom from the customer side, and then they were churning off providers. And, and it was just like the, the customer experience was not good. Conversely, uh, another one that I like to look at a lot is called Lux, and this was on-demand valet. So you're in San Francisco, you're a VC, you know, you driving your Porsche and you don't have, you have a nine o'clock meeting and it's 8.45, you don't have 30 minutes to go find a parking space. So you press a button and this dude pops out in an orange vest and he goes, parks your car for you, um, or purple vest, which is great. Um, and you only pay $5. So there they nailed the customer experience, but then they didn't do the business side, which is, all right, you're paying this guy in an orange purple vest to just stand there waiting for hours at a time, waiting for a VC to come by. <laughs> so, and then also, you know, what's the addressable market of that? So no one outside of maybe three large metros. So you have like 
0.001% of the population in three large metros. So the addressable market was teeny tiny. So they, they had kind of nailed this very specific customer experience um, and VCs loved it and funded it, but ultimately you know, none of the economics made sense. So you have to kind of nail both, I think. Yeah, I don't know how you park in San Fran for anywhere for five bucks. Right, downtown cities yeah. too. They would pass on the fee of parking as well, but the the service fee was five dollars. Okay. So it was actually you know, so they were they had negative gross margins. So so they didn't think about you know the the complexity of on demand is the best customer experience is an immediate satisfaction, but you know to deliver that you're going to, have to pay the service provider to wait. Um, so there's that, that's one of the tricks of on demand that, that we've discovered. So anything you can do to get around that is good. So you tell that story and I'm thinking of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, right? Yeah. The guy takes the car and he's just yes. joyriding around town. So. <laughs> what kind of changes have you seen in kind of on-demand services over the last, say, one to three years, three to seven years? You know, has there been a fundamental shift in challenges? There's more people obviously doing it now, but what have you seen has been the biggest changes over the last couple of years? And do you expect those changes to continue? Yes. Yeah, so, so one of the biggest ones out there is how you work with your uh, your labor pool. So, so we decided pretty early on, based on that feedback from property managers, we couldn't use contractors. Um, so we couldn't just kind of go to random people and say, hey, you know, come wash cars for us and we'll 1099 you. So using the 1099 kind of a model. Um, all Uber and Lyft drivers are 1099. So that was a very popular, as the on-demand economy kind of spun up, everyone wanted to use that model. Um, there's some benefits to that model. Um, for sure, especially on your financials, um, it, they make your margins look a lot higher than they are. So I would say that's definitely a move. So a lot of companies out there are more full stack is kind of the vernacular, meaning you have assets. Um, instead of being asset light and employee light, we're, we're at Spiffy, for example, um, we're asset heavy and, and asset heavy. Here also in the triangle, we have Canopy doing lawn care that way. It's kind of interesting for every segment, there's a startup kind of trying each way. So there's your mechanic, which is 1099. And there's rent, which is more full stack. I, I'm obviously drinking the full stack Kool-Aid, but what, what's nice about it is we control the customer experience. So if a customer, for whatever reason, has a bad experience, we can go make it right. Um, we can track, uh, you know, who are the technicians? Was there a training thing? With 1099, there's all these rules of what you can and can't do. A lot of startups break those, but we're trying to build something big and scalable. So we, we can't kind of fundamentally have a foundation that's kind of not solid where we're breaking all these rules around labor laws. So that, that's probably the biggest difference I've seen out there uh, with on-demand economy companies is, is how they treat their providers or their, their labor pool. And with Spiffy, you guys have scaled into going from, you talked about the evolution of, hey, we've got this brick and mortar car wash and like, oh, we got this, you know, we can go out to people's houses or, you know, office complex and things like that. You guys have scaled in the fleet and are doing oil changes now, which I've always said, if someone come to my house and do an oil change for me, I would love it. Was that a natural progression? Was it something that, was the goal to get in the fleet and you needed oil changes to get in the fleet or did fleet come after the concept of saying, hey, why don't we branch out into oil changes and provide an additional service for people? How did that come about? Yeah, so so I, I always kind of say I, I have pretty, you know, I have an entrepreneurial playbook, but it's only like two or three pages. <laughs> it's serving you well. <laughs> yeah, and it, you know, uh, it works. I just kind of hit the more button on the, on those pages. You know, page two of my entrepreneurial playbook is um, after you've gotten some customers, listen to them. Um, and it's funny, I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs and they, you know, there's this kind of famous Steve Jobs, Henry Ford quote. Um, Steve Jobs always said this Henry Ford quote, which is, if I asked customers what they wanted, they'd say faster horses and the car would have never been invented. So I, I guess I'm, uh, I don't, you know, that's a way to look at it and I'm not creating the next Apple here, um, but I've had a lot of success 
listen, actually listening to customers. And so, you know, we, uh, in 2017, we had raised some capital and listening to customers, um, both uh, individuals and property managers, what we heard over and over again was um, some interest in fueling and then also interest in oil change. So it was really customer driven. So we we tried fueling and it's just, you know, to your earlier point, uh, the economics are really hard. There's no margin in fuel. And then, you know, you've got the this highly explosive thing and there's all these rules and regulations. So, you know, as best we can understand, fire marshals in North Carolina will not allow fueling on corporate campuses. So the residential model will, will never work economically. So we, we said, okay, uh, so we, we pretty quickly 86 fueling. And then oil change, when we talked to property managers, what we heard was, my environmental concerns with WASH were maybe a five out of 10, uh, and you guys resolved those. Oil change is like an eight out of 10, and fueling is an 11 out of 10. Uh, so we said we had to come up with an environmental friendly way of doing oil change, because what everyone envisions is the typical lift the vehicle, drop the, the pan, and, and you know oil comes running out onto the, the dirt, and then you know, quickly runs down a drain, which no one wants, and then covers a bird and all this kind of bad stuff. So we, uh, we looked at this and iterated, and what we ultimately ended up doing is when, when you change the oil on large equipment like caterpillars and stuff, you can use a vacuum system. So we, we adopted the vacuum system for uh, traditional vehicles. So we actually go into the oil, um, the, the dipstick tube, and we suck the oil out of your car. And uh, because we do that, oil never comes out of the vehicle. It's pretty neat. It kind of, you can actually see it go through this clear straw out of the vehicle and right into our van, into a containment area where we then recycle the oil. We have these recyclers that pick up the oil. So that was a big innovation. And that really satisfied the property managers. Um, and then what happened is we, we serendipitously, we'd done a little bit of fleet washing as kind of a supplement. So like maybe an enterprise rental car, Hertz and Avis, they would have these peak times and they couldn't keep up with their own, they have their own detailers, but we would supplement it. And we were visiting one of them to do some supplemental washing and they saw we had oil change and they're like, wait a minute, you have oil change? Uh, it turns out they have a much more acute need for oil change than washing. And they they like the combination because they, usually they have a policy when they do an oil change, they get a vehicle washed. So the fact we can kind of do both um, kind of serendipitously, you know, checked a lot of boxes for them. Uh, so since rolling that out, oil, you know, fleet has gone from maybe 2% of what we do to 25 and oh, wow. probably on its way to 30 or 40%. Um, it's just kind of, we, we haven't expanded new cities in, in about a year now because we've just been consuming as much fleet as we can get on our plate right now. So you guys are currently in Raleigh, Charlotte, Dallas, Atlanta, and Los Angeles. Those listening, obviously they can, they can find you there. As the acceleration of, of fleet services, you mentioned that you're looking to expand, but you're okay for right now. Has the percentage of fleet business changed potentially which markets you're going to next? Is that kind of shifted priority for some of those? It has, and so the way we think about the markets is, um, Raleigh is a, an interesting market, uh, and the, uh, a fun fact about the Raleigh-Durham area is a lot of local things have launched here because it's considered a Goldilocks city. It's not too big, not too small. We have really favorable demographics. We kind of like look like a slice of America. We probably over-index on income and education a bit compared to other cities, but but you know we have this really kind of you know interesting population. So a fun fact is City Search launched here. Um, you know, back in the day, uh, and several other kind of local things have launched here. But what's interesting is, so Raleigh is like city number 50 in the United States. So uh, the way we have thought about it is, and there's really good data out there for free, thanks to the U.S. Census Bureau, your tax dollars at work. They define these metropolitan statistical areas or MSAs. Um, so so we know Spiffy works well in an MSA of a million people and up. So, so Raleigh is kind of like 1.2 million. 
And you know, uh, car washing has a weather component. Um, so we've prioritized warm weather MSAs uh, and then fleet. Uh, you know, so, so the way we think about them is office park market, um, which is important. So class A office space is a big input into that. So weather, class A office space, and then now to your point, fleet. Um, so we know what the first 50 cities are gonna be. Um, and it's just is really kind of an ordering exercise. And then we know the 20 sunny ones. So really fleet has kind of changed the order of those 20 a little bit of, okay. of how we want to tackle them. It's interesting. I'm assuming Northern cities on the lower end of, of that list. And I grew up in North, Northern city. I actually used to work at a car wash. My wife always teases me. She's like, you have worked every job in the world. And yeah. I think I might've, I might have. A lot of people have car washing in their history. It's interesting when you, when you actually start talking to people. So busiest time of year in Buffalo for car washes, wintertime, right? Everyone's trying to get that salt off their car. Yeah. High school was great. I used to make a lot of money drying cars off, washing tires, things like that. Cold cities, obviously lower end of that 50 list, but does the, is it simply just because warmer weather is more convenient? You have more offices typically in, in warmer cities, right? People are out and about or looking at the amount of salt that's on the road. Does that change how you look at these things at all? You figure, hey, we can go out there, we're gonna wash them, they're gonna get salt on the way home. Doesn't really matter that much. Yeah, so we're, we're eager to try this. So, so there's a couple interesting things. So in the car wash world, outside of your experience, um, so this is like physical tunnels, many of them close down in the winter months. And it, a lot of it is because uh, the conventional wisdom is that it's a seasonal business in those cities and they're just open kind of spring through fall and they close for the winter. Now, part of that's driven by most traditional tunnels are, are have water component and it's hard to keep them heated enough in those cold cities so that it doesn't freeze up. Because once you open the door and let a frozen car in, it like messes up the whole thing. So it's hard to, you know, but then every time I talk to somebody from one of those areas, they say, actually, I would rather wash my car more in the winter. So there's, I think there is an interesting opportunity there for us. We haven't solved the cold weather problem from a technology standpoint. We're, we're currently water-based and it will freeze kind of sub 30 degrees. Yes. You don't want to put any freeze in the water. There, there's a lot of things you can't do that are bad for the vehicle and the environment. We, we have some ideas on how to solve that and we're, we're pretty eager to go solve those. Uh, you know, I, I say, 25-year-old entrepreneur Scott Wingo, we would have opened in Chicago second because that would have been a fun <laughs> challenge. You know, the the I just turned 50. So 50-year-old Scott entrepreneur is like, let's knock out the first 20 ones that are kind of easy. <laughs> That's on the end of page three. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then we'll, you know, then we'll figure out the cold weather thing. So um, it's definitely on our list. And I'm I'm really eager to figure out what does that look like? What's that demand curve look like? Because everyone tells me that there actually will be larger demand. So, you know, the the nice thing is we've experimented, right? So we in the winter here um, and then our other cities, we roll out an undercarriage clean. So we can actually mount, we use a power washing system and we can mount a, a, a device on there that will go under the vehicle and get the undercarriage. Oh, um, so knocking off all that salt and, and whatnot. Um, and that was very popular here, you know, in Raleigh, we salt the roads twice, you know, but uh, afterwards we, we sold a lot of that upgrade and that was a popular service. So, so we're able to do some experimentation while we're in the sunny cities um, that, I, that should hopefully lay the foundation for being in colder markets. If a traditional retailer, brick and mortar, e-com pure play, whatever, that doesn't really venture into on-demand type stuff. If they're listening, what can they learn from the on-demand economy or the on-demand customer to apply to their own business to provide a better customer experience? Because you certainly talked about, hey, I listen to my customers and that kind of is the, the genesis for you know the next step or the next evolution. It's harder for a lot of e-com pure plays that are getting thousands and thousands of orders a day 
to listen to their customers, someone's tell them to do so, but what can they learn most from, from what you're doing? Yeah, so, so a couple things. Um, and it, it's funny, I get a lot of questions. They're like, all right, you did Channel Advisor, which is e-commerce enablement kind of in the world of Bronto. You know, we're kind of in the, the same kind of area overall. Uh, and then now you've done this kind of car washing thing, but there's no no rhyme or reason there. But, but there is, so the way I think about it is, is a couple of things. So we've, over the last 20 years, we've seen physical goods go digital. And, and by going digital, there's many components to that. Uh, the biggest one is the consumer now has control, right? So if we go back 20 years, you know, some, some taste maker at Macy's in New York decided everyone's gonna want, you know, I don't know, purple. Purple's the big color this year and every store has suddenly had purple. Um, now consumers decide all that and tastemakers are more like social kind of, you know, influencer kind of things. Part of being digital, yes, you shop online, there's an app component, things come faster and all that, but there's also kind of a who has control. Uh, I think we see services go digital over the next 20 years and there's a huge overlap there. Um, so the, the, the overlap I think of is um, there's this really good research out from Deloitte uh, called the bifurcation and it's really retail oriented um, and, and you see this in retail and essentially what they say is there's research now 10 years after the recession of 08 that say the U.S. population is split into two buckets and that's the bifurcation. You have the value oriented consumer and the convenience oriented consumer. So all, most of the pure plays that are listening, you have a convenience oriented consumer because they are clearly using an online thing for the convenience. So online is growing 15%, Amazon's growing 30%. Uh, in that convenience bucket, we're growing like 110%. Uber's growing, no one knows how fast, but I imagine still over 100%. Then you have this gulf in the middle where if a retailer is neither value-oriented or convenience-oriented, they're not doing well. So this is mostly the mall-based kind of retailers, like a Sears, a Macy's, a JCPenney. They're, they're really struggling to kind of grow north of 5%. Um, and then you have this segment over in the value-oriented side, which is on fire. So the dollar stores, the clubs, they, they tend to be growing, you know, almost double the retail baseline. So I I think that's an interesting thing to think through for, for, for people in the retail world. And then the last one is, the number one question I get in the, the channel advisor world is uh, usually fear of Amazon. So uh, kind of FOA. Uh, and you know what do I do in a world where Amazon is just relentlessly going after every category, they're gonna do pharmacies next and all this kind of thing. And you know if you can bundle a service with a product, then you've effectively kind of, you know, really mitigated yourself from Amazon being Amazoned. Um, so imagine, you know, if you sell something that can be installed or there, there's a million ways to think about this. And a lot of the retail successes have this service component to them. I think that's something, if I was a retailer, uh, I would be thinking about that because it gives you this kind of moat that, that Amazon uh, historically has not really wanted to go after. Yeah, Best Buy had a, started doing that a lot more with Absolutely. TV installations and things. Yeah. And they, yeah, they acquired, a, they acquired a, you know, they've got several things. So they've got Geek Squad and they acquired Magnolia, which is kind of a, you know, a come in and say, hey, Greg, do you want a home theater? Here's kind of like a good, better, best. And then they'll kind of do the full install. And, and so it's kind of products and installation and a consulting kind of a consultancy kind of a thing that's all combined. Do you, from your sense, and we've got a few minutes left here um, that we can finish up, but do you get a sense that there's any sort of fatigue with on-demand services or on-demand businesses that are setting in with consumers? I don't know, for me, I get some fatigue on subscription-based stuff, right? Because everything seems subscription-based now, which companies obviously like, right? It's a recurring model. I mean, software companies love subscription services, right? So, yeah. but I'm like, you know, every time I turn around, I'm like, oh, I'm paying Netflix here and I'm paying this over here and I'm paying this over here. And I just kind of hit a fatigue. Do you? 
get a feeling that that's happening at all or that will start happening and the crowd will start to thin itself out a little bit more? Yeah. Um, so these things tend to come in waves and, I, and on the subscription side, yeah, you know, there's like subscription coffees and stuff like that. You know, you have to be kind of a real coffee geek to really want you know, all this coffee showing up at your door. And the meal kits thing has kind of gone through its kind of boom bust cycle. In the on-demand, you know, I think we've had the first wave. Uh, there's been a lot of successes and failures in there. The Ubers and Lyfts of the world have done well. Wag and some of those kinds of things on the dog walking. And then there's been a lot that haven't. So, you know, what I have found is VCs are kind of not investing in the space, but then there's a lot of more organic kind of companies growing. They're really kind of trying to satisfy the end consumer's needs. So I don't think we're at the saturation yet. Um, you know, I think one of the last waves we'll see is, uh, you, you know, I have a house and I always want more of an on-demand economy experience for the stuff around my house. So there's no HVAC kind of winter there. There's no electrician. There's no, you know, I just had like some windows cleaned that had been needed to be done for like five years. And it was a very, you know, analog kind of a call a guy, he comes out for a quote, you have to meet him at home. You know, people just don't have time for that anymore. So, so I think there's actually a big set of things that need to be more on demand and, and we'll, we have a lot more room to kind of grow. I think we're kind of, you know, day one still with on demand. Interesting. So you're a serial entrepreneur, right? You've started multiple businesses, um, had success with them. From whether it's with Spiffy or one of your previous ventures, what's one mistake you've made, whether it's changed you, that kind of sounds weird, but whether it's changing in some respects or the biggest lesson that you've learned from that mistake, whether it was might've been a minor mistake, but it taught you a really big lesson, what would that one thing be? Yeah, so one of the pages of my playbook is you, you're gonna make a lot of mistakes, right? So you're building something that's never been built. It, it's holding yourself to a standard you're never live up to to say you're not going to make mistakes so knowing you're going to make mistakes but then making sure that they, they are not uh, business ending mistakes so so you can't just kind of like say i'm going to bet the whole business on on x you know <laughs> i'm going you know white 21 and you know kind of a roulette kind of a thing so that's probably it is to realize you know to make a lot of mistakes learn from them not repeat them and then iterate quickly and then don't let any of them any of the things you're trying, uh, or, you know, that are potentially going to be failures, uh, be kind of you know existential problems for your business. So because of that, because I'm, I, I fail probably like ten times a day, I can't think of a you know a, a particular one. But a lot of it's around, you know, there, there's uh, any business is a people business. So a lot of it's around hiring folks, and you know, um, there's a lot of things there. None of them are, are unique and that you haven't heard before. But you know, I've probably made every mistake in the book there around people and hiring, and um, so so I think I'm pretty good at that now. Uh, but the, I have a lot of scar tissue around that. You know, the whole go get a guy out of GE that you think is going to be awesome, and then there, you know, you parachute them into a you know, Channel Advisor has like 700 people now. That's a tiny organization for them, right? And they're they're used to all this support infrastructure that you don't have. And so I've done that. I've done the, you know, someone's not performing, give them like their fifth or sixth chance. You kind of have to figure, you know, kind of, now I know you have to have that conversation early that it's not working out for either of us. It's good for both of you. Um, so it's so a lot of those, a lot of my hardest lessons have come from from people kind of lessons. Very cool. We got just a couple minutes here. So I'm gonna end this on somewhat of a fun note here. Yeah. So a couple questions for you. You mentioned you're a Star Wars fan. Yeah. Worst Star Wars movie? Uh, so pretty universally, uh, you know, episode one, 
But it's interesting, you know, so so that you have the original trilogy, which is four, five, and six, then you have the prequels, uh, and then now you have kind of the new era. Uh, I'm a I'm a kid of the 70s and 80s, so I'm, I'm definitely an original trilogy person. But, you know, the prequels have, you know, I think they've done pretty well over time. You know, episode three is pretty neat how they, you know, the whole space opera thing kind of comes together where you've got the twins being born and the the, the fight between Anakin and Obi-Wan and all that. So that's probably, episode one is probably my least favorite, uh, but I still like it. Favorite character and why? Uh, I like Boba Fett. Um, so the, the, a lot of people may not know this, but the history of Boba Fett is, so you, so you had uh, New Hope episode for the first movie that came out. And then there's this, you know, we were all love Star Wars. And then there's this huge drought. Well, there's this Christmas special. And uh, uh, it kind of, it was like this rogue thing where Lucas didn't really sign off on it. And in the Christmas special was like this 30 second cartoon where they introduced Boba Fett. And then they also had teased him with a toy. So that character just kind of has a special place in my heart because of this kind of, here is this weird guy and this thing. What is he? He had this rocket launcher on his back and you know all this really kind of cool stuff. So so he's always been one of my favorites. And you have a toy, I assume. I have many Boba Fett toys. Yes. <laughs> uh, is a hot dog a sandwich? Mm, no. Why not? Uh, I think the bread has to be flat-ish for a sandwich. Flat bread. So is a, is a sub a sandwich? Mm, yes, it's flattish. Flattish. Fair enough. <laughs> And one last one here. Uh, what's your guilty pleasure? TV shows, songs? You, listen, you jamming a Miley Cyrus on the way to the office today, or? Yeah. So, so I have three kids, and uh, two are in college, so so I don't get to spend a ton of time with them. Uh, but I do have a middle schooler, so uh, you know I've always enjoyed immersing myself in the pop culture of what my kids are going through. Uh, so a lot of Taylor Swift. Okay. So I, you know, I'm a, I can I probably know the words to every Taylor Swift song. Have you been to a Taylor Swift concert? I have not, but my my daughter has. Been. Okay. Yeah, I didn't want to be the creepy old guy. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. That's when you learn the lesson about sketchy guys and sketchy vans. That yes. was you hopping yes. on the van. Don't be the sketchy guy at the Taylor Swift concert. Fair enough. So Scott, if uh, if anyone wants to get a hold of you or check out more about Spiffy, what's the best way for them to either contact you, contact uh, the company, check it out? Why don't you give a little contact uh, info, if you will? Sure. Yeah. So uh, one fun fact about my name is my uh, Scott has one T. Uh, my dad thought it would be kind of fun and unique. Um, and it's made me infinitely Googleable. So if you just Google Scott Wingo with one T, I, I will pop up. And then uh, on Twitter, I'm just Scott Wingo, S-C-O-T-W-I-N-G-O. And on LinkedIn, you can find me under Scott Wingo. That's a great way to connect. Uh, and then uh, for Spiffy, if you go to getspiffy.com uh, or look for Spiffy uh, on any of the app stores, you can download our app. Very cool. Well, thanks for your time today, Scott. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed the conversation. Cool. So Scott Wing, everyone, co-founder and CEO at Spiffy, uh, executive chairman and channel advisor and co-host of the Jason and Scott Show. Thanks for your time, Scott. To everyone listening, hope you enjoyed the episode, especially Elliot from Mount Pleasant, New Jersey. Certainly let me know whether you did enjoy the show or did not. If there's topics you'd like to hear about or you're interested in being a guest, I'd love to hear from you. And until next time, have a great day and be kind to one another. Bye.